Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is author Mina Samuels. She's a freelance writer and editor, and in a previous incarnation worked as a litigation lawyer and human rights advocate, so we got a lot of ground to cover in a pretty short time. Mina's written a fiction novel called Queen of Cups, a nonfiction called Run Like a Girl, and her follow-on nonfiction releases on June 4th entitled Run Like a Girl 365 Days a Year, a Practical, Personal, Inspirational Guide for Women Athletes. Mina has also ghostwritten a number of other works, created and performed two solo stage shows, and she's written a third ensemble play that had its first full production this past March. Among other topics, her nonfiction works feature strategies and tactics for the mental and self-care aspects of performance, which brings Mina and her expertise into the studio with me today. Mina, thank you so much for joining Writers on the Beat. Thanks so much for having me, Gavin. Well, when I when I was approached with your upcoming book, I, I knew I wanted you to come on the show as as soon as I I, I read the the piece on it. Uh, the topics of self care and mental presence, uh, listening to your body, all, all those things are coming up much more frequently in my own life as I'm aging, and I'm seeing a lot of success and also consequence related to my decisions about them. Uh, not only in my my athletic performance, but in my personal relationships and my work life, and also in my writing. Um, I think that uh, writers and aspiring authors of all genres spend a ton of time buying and researching books on craft and on writing and uh, taking online courses from dozens of people on dozens of topics. But I think some of the underrated and often absent aspects of a successful creative business like writing are kind of the touchy feely things like self care and self awareness. Um, for, for people unfamiliar with you and your works, uh, what do you want them to know about your book and its topics? Well, uh, Run Like a Girl, the first one, and this new one, Run Like a Girl, 365 days a year. Um, I'm talking about the transformative impact of sports in women's lives in particular, which isn't to say I don't think that sports are important, aren't important in everybody's life, mm-hmm. but I think they hold, um, they still unfortunately hold a special place in women's lives where we are not necessarily raised with the kind of um, uh, training in ambition and physicality that um, a lot of boys get because they are naturally streamed into sports in a way that girls aren't. Mm-hmm. The second book, the first book was really just about that. The second book, starts to feed much more closely into what you were just talking about because I wanted to expand on the topic and look a lot more outward um, because I think that it's really important that we are physical in the world, but I think that there is a reason that it's good for us to be physical in the world. And part of that is that when we ourselves are taking care of ourselves and we are healthier and we are literally more in touch with what our body is up to, then we can be more present in the rest of the world, in our relationships, in um, how we're treating other people, in our care for the environment, um, certainly 
if you're the kind of athlete who does things outdoors, you're going to start to care a little bit more about how that outdoors is doing. Um, and then there's, then there's the almost um, flip side of that, which is equally important, which I also wanted to talk about more in the second book, which is the, um, the piece of kind of self-knowledge mm -hmm. and getting to know yourself better, which is also, I think, a, a tool for writers that um, can't be underestimated. I always, I do a lot of editorial work with writers and I really feel very strongly that when you are writing from your most authentic place and honestly, even if it's fiction, if you're writing honestly, um, then that will be your best writing. Um, yeah, and, that, and that's one of the primary themes of, of this show is helping writers, you know, incorporate greater authenticity. And to me, that also means, you know, greater quality in, in their writing, regardless of their, their genre. And for me and in my experience, when I, I'm most effective, when I'm most focused and I, I'm really goal oriented, I like plans, um, but being able to, to kind of more effectively or deliberately, I think is a better word, juggle um, all these balls in our lives between family time and chores and um, you know, the, the mundane things that have to be done and then finding time to be creative and finding time to take care of our bodies. Like all that gets really complicated and kind of messy and a lot of it gets sacrificed along the way. Um, how, how does your guidance help the public in general, but you know, kind of specifically our, our, our community writers uh, reach their greatest potential? I think that this issue of focus versus creativity and how uh, how we can use um, focus to gain more creativity and how we can use periods of creativity to enable more focus is um, a naughty, as in tying a knot, problem yes. for um, lots of us. And that is, that's one of the things I talk about a lot in my book, I think it's part of this whole, you know, finding balance in general in our lives. I think that um, when we start to engage our bodies, there's this theory out there called embodied technician, uh, cognition, excuse me, that we don't think just with our minds, we think with our bodies. Mm -hmm. And uh, we feel that that's true immediately. When we're in distress, when we're in mental distress, our thinking is not as clear. And that's not because our mind alone isn't clear. It's because our body itself is blocked up by all the emotions that we're having difficulty processing. So I think that um, when we start to engage with our bodies in a more, our bodies and minds in a more holistic way, which is something that athletics allows us to do because it's a place where we tune in to how we're doing physically that day and how we feel, um, then we can start to see that benefit ripple in the rest of our lives. Um, for writers in particular, I, you know, running is where I've had many of my ideas. It's, yes. it's the place where I can let um, my mind free float. Sometimes I listen to podcasts when I run, although I'm kind of wavering back and forth. I've been listening to them a lot. Now I'm thinking I might listen to them less. But even when I'm listening to a podcast, um, I, I, this is one of those balance between focus and creativity moments. 
I'm list, I listen to podcasts generally because I'm curious to hear new ideas because I think those are going to spark, um, those are going to catalyze ideas I'm already thinking about, or they're going to give me a new window into something I'm already wanting to write about. And so I'm using this time to create space in my mind and, um, and it's uninterrupted. I'm not taking public transportation. Mm -hmm. I'm not interrupting the podcast every five seconds to look at, at my <laughs> social email media. or my text or social <laughs> media or anything. I'm just listening to it and I'm flowing through the park and I'm looking at mm -hmm. the trees and I'm, and I'm absorbing um, new ways of thinking. So I, I actually find um, the physical aspect, the aspects of my life to be incredibly nourishing for my writing and very important and I know that people like to kind of characterize writers as you know ghost pale people <laughs> in, inside all the time yes. who never actually move around and use their bodies and sometimes even it's I I've been at um, I haven't gone that often to writing retreats, but I know that the first one I went on, I recall, which was many, many years ago, more than 20 years ago. I remember people looking at me like I couldn't actually be a serious writer because I was going out for a run. Yes. It was like, well, that's not. And then about 10 years later, I went to a, a different writer's retreat and actually went running with a couple of the other people um, who were at the retreat. And I thought, well, things are changing. Yes. <laughs> this is yeah. interesting. Yeah, and you know, for me, uh my my greatest therapist in my entire life has been a decent desert trail. And you know, being out in the outdoors, I think there is there's a connection, an ethereal connection there that cannot be replicated otherwise. And I can solve so many problems just by putting on my running shoes and going down the trail for thirty minutes or an hour you know, sometimes a little bit longer, but <laughs> usually yes. not. Um, yes. you, and, do you live in Phoenix? Do yeah, we're, we're uh, in uh, in Tucson area now. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. And, you know, Is so, that... yeah, we've got desert trails all around us, and uh, we're like 45 minutes to an hour from pine trees. So it's a great nice. place to be. That's very nice. I did a theater workshop in Tempe, Arizona, mm -hmm. a few years ago, and um, so I – found the trails, some nice desert trails, yes. you know, it's like in the middle of town and yep. here's this great trail I'm running on. And really it is, it was just the best way to start the day. Yeah. We're, right. uh, we're actually going to be at the thriller fest, um, in, uh, New York in July. And one of the things I'm looking forward to is running in central park. Um, you know, as it's just such an iconic place. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Have you run in Central Park before? Never been to New York City in my life. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I'll email you afterwards to tell you <laughs> other, places, other places that you should run because um, Central Park is great and just and you can get off the road a lot, mm -hmm. which is really fantastic. Yes. So especially now, it's the park is so is I mean during the daytime you can just go anywhere in the park and there are great um, trails in the park. I mean, there's a horse trail to begin with that's beside a lot of the road. And so when I run in Central Park, I run, I'm probably 60% on dirt oh, when, yeah. when I do that run, which you would not expect. There's also a whole run up the upper, up the west side, um, all the way up to the George Washington Bridge, um, where there's like a little kind of dirt trail you can run along. 
beside the bike trail. So it's a great running city. <laughs> yeah, with your with your previous work, you know, you've you've done so many different things. Um, with your your previous work in in litigation and, and human rights, I, I wonder how much of that has found its way into your your own works, into your ghost writing, and into your your fiction novel. So. I would say that the main thing from those experiences that have made it into my work are not in terms of content, but they're in terms of approach. Um, from, from practicing law, I bring a lot of organization, a lot of, you know, sort of focus and desire to actually complete projects. Um, and uh, and also an ability to let go of things and have other people look at them. I'm not a writer who writes alone in her room for years at a time and then presents something fait accompli to the world. I am almost always soliciting uh, input from other people and um, you know accepting uh, criticism and critique and suggestions so that I can make it better. And I feel like part of that is um, having worked as a lawyer where you were constantly showing your work to other people and that, you know, that was part of, and in aid of getting it done. And, um, you know, perfection can be the enemy of completion. And I've certainly known yes. a few writers who, have difficulty with completion because they are so convinced that there is a perfect that they are aiming for. Um, the other thing that I feel the, the, the other piece that I feel like I bring from working in human rights and also the practice of law, which I went into with noble intentions, um, cause I thought I would save the world with law, yes. uh, with practicing law and then discovered it wasn't the right way for me to do that. Uh, is that I want to do work that matters in some way. It, it, it's important to me that what I do touches people at some level. And um, there's nothing more, there's nothing more fulfilling than when I put something out there in the world and someone responds to me personally and says, oh, I read X that you wrote today and it made me think about doing this thing in my own life that's what um I, that was just such a joyful moment when that happens so all of them have been all of them have been places where um purpose is behind um the practice and that's i i got introduced to the the philosophy the concept of a, a purpose-driven life um it feels like a lifetime ago now, um, but I, I think that that is something else that get, kind of gets underrated in people's writing business uh, or their writing purpose. Is you know why are why are we doing this? Why are we as why would I as an individual be so arrogant as to write a thing from my own imagination and think that anyone else cared about it? Um, and I think that's one of the things that. Um, as, as recently kind of come to reemerged in, in, in my attention, my focus and my writing business is the why, why, why am I doing this? Why would other people care? Why would it matter? And um, with what 
everything that, that you're doing, I would imagine that you have a very purpose-driven focus on, on why you're, you're doing these things. I do. Uh, I, I, I want to preface my answer, um, which will sound somewhat upbeat with the caveat that um, I do, and I can't hang on to it every single day that some days I wake up and I think, oh, what's the use? Why do I do this? Um, I'm so, I'm delusional if I think it has any importance or effect in the world. Um, that said, uh, I am um, conscious of the fact that I am writing because I would like to provoke people to think about the world more deeply and think about their place in the world more deeply and um, possibly encourage them to step up to their better selves um, a little with a little more authority. I, it, it, it was a, it was not a quick journey to get to that feeling and uh, First, it took me a while to even own that I was a writer. Uh, for a long time, I would just say, well, I do editorial work, even though I was doing um, <laughs> lots of my own writing. I just safer, felt like right? yeah. I, it's so much safer. It's so much safer. And, and um, so even when I published the, the novel was the first thing I published. Even when I published that, uh, it, I, couldn't, I didn't feel like I could call myself a writer because most of the money I made came from doing editorial work for people. So it was like the writing's fake, but I'm an editor. And I just, I, I couldn't claim it enough. And about seven years ago, I um, went on a vision fast down in New Mexico, which was a, sort of a 12 day program that follows the whole Joseph Campbell um, kind of mythological setup of um, sitting in a council circle and and you know discussing with people what your intention is when you're going to go out into the desert and fast like what is the thing that you are going to be thinking about while you're alone for four days and then you do the alone part for four days and then you come back and you tell the story of what happened and you integrate it into your life so my intention the intention that the circle I was in really kind of forced me to craft because I came in with an intention that was much less bold. Um, but the intention that I ended up with was that I wanted to create art work. Actually, they made me put big art <laughs> <laughs> that helped people um, get closer to themselves. That was the intention that I took with me out into the desert while I fasted for four days and thought about, you know, what I wanted to do with my life. And that was really a turning point. When I came back, I really determined that I needed to stop. I would cop out a lot and take paid work that I didn't have to take, but that was that I could justify that I needed to take is really, it's always good to be making more money. Sure. And then I didn't ha have time to do my own work. Yep. So I'll just take this work, which is actually not very satisfying to my soul and doesn't, and, you know, 
isn't nourishing me in the way my own work does, but it makes me feel really safe. So when I came back from that um, vision fast, I really started to move much more with much more purpose in the in to the place where I am now, which is that I really focus um, almost exclusively on my own work. I don't really write for other people anymore, but I do still love doing editorial work for um, some people who's who's there. I, there's a psychiatrist for example who I've worked with on several writing projects that she's involved in and I'm fascinated by what she wants to write about mm -hmm. and so and I always feel like I learn when I talk to her and um, and I so I, it, it really feels good to work through what she's writing with her but I'm not writing it for her so um, it also doesn't take away from um, any of my writing energy so yes, since then I've really, and, but you know, as I said, sometimes I get up and I think, oh, you know, really, really, you're so arrogant to think that you have a purpose mm -hmm. in your writing. Um, but I, you know, then someone will email me, oh, I read your piece and, uh, you know, I've been struggling with building a meditation practice, for example, and this really helped me. And, and do you have some other thoughts about how I might you know, here's where I'm at on my meditation practice. What what insights do you have extra to share from what you put out in that piece of writing? And that feels, that to me validates the reason that I'm writing. And I was a little mad at myself recently because a friend said, well, what would be success uh, on your new book? How would you measure success? What would that be? And um, God, we started talking about, you know, numbers of books sold. And afterwards I thought, why was I even talking yeah. about that? Right. I mean, that's, it's not the right way. It, it, it's a measure of something, but if I put that as my measure of success, it's, it, it, I'm always going to be chasing for more. Yes. Yeah. And you know, that's, uh, that's really focusing more on, you know, the, the how and the what, you know, and, and not, the why, the, not the purpose. Um, and I think, you know, success intrinsically is so closely tied to fulfilling the why we're doing these things. Um, and even, even as a fiction author, um, you know, I have, I, I think what to me are, are, are reasonable whys for, uh, for why I'm, I'm writing fiction, why I think my, my voice is important and why I, I would like people to to hear it, um, and you know, to to others on the the outside, it might might also seem a, a little bit arrogant. But you know, I, I think that that putting out a book that or a series that more accurately portrays the life of part of our population and, and helps us understand each other better and introduces us to new thoughts, new paradigms, maybe a new perspective on some of the things that we've taken as is commonplace um and along the way giving people some some reprieve and some some entertainment um for for their money um i think that those are are all really uh i don't want to say admirable that sounds so arrogant i, I, mm -hmm. I really but i um, think those, those are worthy um yes, worthy. reasons yes. and i imagine you know thinking 
you know, thinking of my own little intention at the Vision Fest, I imagine that just as like a core community of readers, you, there are people who are um, uh, in the police force now who can read your novels and they can see themselves in this sort of noble light that you're writing and that elevates them. I mean, that is, it's, it's, it's offering them um, a mirror that sees them in the world and we all want to be seen. And so that is just, I mean, that's just like your first, like the first tiny circle of, you know, and then the circle gets bigger and the circle gets bigger of who's reading your work. But yes, I think, I mean, it can't help but be important. No, and I'd, I'd like to think that, that, um, you know, the folks who were still putting on the, the vest and the badge every day and going out, that those of us or those of them that, that read my works will maybe take a little bit, a little bit of steel from it, a little bit of, you know, more, more confidence, a little bit, um, a little bit of personal strength to go out and do it again tomorrow, regardless of what happened today. And that the, the civilian population that reads it maybe will have a little better appreciation for the, the, the struggles as well as the triumphs of, of that, of that profession and the, the demands that our society has on it. So, you know, it's a, it's a small thing, but it could end up, you know, could end up making a difference for some. Yes. And, you know, how many people does it have to make a difference for, for it to feel like it was worthwhile? I don't, we can't measure that. Right. Now, I understand you also had a pretty specific purpose in, in your fiction writing and, and what motivated you to, to write Queen of Cups. I did. I was um, the main character of my novel, Queen of Cups, is this woman, Juliet Purse, who was married to uh, a great logician, um, Charles Purse who was a very close friend of William James and um, did not, he, he recently actually has come back a little into the limelight because the, he was incredibly brilliant. He had 80,000 unpublished um, pages of writing when he wow. died. Um, but a lot of what he, a lot of what he was working on is now being used in AI, interestingly. A lot of his sort of like the the logical problems that he was solving and posing, but in any event, he was married to this woman Juliet Purse, and um, was the second marriage. And a lot of people blame her for the fact that he did not achieve a lot of fame or success during his lifetime. And I, when I read that about her, I felt that she had been maligned because he was a man who suffered. He, there's now some thought that he may have been bipolar, an undiagnosed disease at the time. He also suffered from um, uh, trigeminal neuralgia, which is a, a nerve pain in the face that can be pretty crippling. And he self-medicated that with, um, gosh, with cocaine and um, morphine and alcohol. Uh, he was really, 
And he would, sometimes he would be in just such terrible shape. He would literally get scraped off the street in Boston by William James and friends, and then sort of sent home to where he was living down um, in Milford, Pennsylvania with um, Juliet. And as far as I was concerned, she held this brilliant man <laughs> together. Without her, he probably, yeah. he wouldn't have had nowhere to go home to after he'd been scraped yes. off the street. So, and she revered him. She worked, you know, tirelessly for the 20 years she outlived him, uh, just trying to get his work into the light because she believed in him so much. And it's not like he gave her an easy life. Um, anyhow, I was fascinated by her and she was a really good canvas to write a novel about because before the night they met at a New Year's Eve party here in New York City at the Hotel Brevoux, she is an unknown, nobody knows, they know she came from Europe, but there's no, there's, there's nothing about her past that anyone knows. So she, it was fascinating for me to just imagine who this woman would be who would um, want to attach herself to this brilliant yet incredibly difficult genius and despite the fact that people would malign her even during her lifetime um, to support his genius. And I wanted to kind of rescue her reputation mm -hmm. and put, you know, give her a voice that history hadn't given her. Mostly she's a footnote or she's sort of mentioned in three lines as a problem in Charles Purse's life. So even then, even with um, my novel, I was trying to, I was trying to write a good story, of course, um, but I was also uh, performing a little bit of a feminist rescue operation <laughs> yes. um, as well. <laughs> and, yeah. and that I like to, I, I, most of my writing, not all of it, but most of it has some um, aspect of empowering uh, women and trying to give um, more voice to um, what's going on with us in the world. Yeah, and you know, it's really incredible that, that you, you have that purpose. And as, as I was hearing you, you, you explain all this, like, you know, I'm running through the kind of laundry list of historical female figures who were blamed in some way for holding up their husbands. Right. And it, it's right. really long and unbelievable list, you know, uh, you know, you know, Nancy Reagan and Mary Todd and, you know, there's, there's no shortage of, of women who are held to blame for, you know, their husband's failings, you know, not just whether or not their, their 1950s collar was white enough. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it really is, uh, I, I guess, a really long historical crime throughout mankind's existence. Yes. Yes, I think that's true, and I'm sure it's still happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but. yeah, you know, I, I, that's one of the things that I, I, really, I really think we don't celebrate it in, enough, you know, with all of the... Um, various equality movements and civil rights movements that have uh, spawned and respawned each other over the last, you know, 50, 60, 100 plus years. Um, if you look from my biased perspective, if you look at the bulk of human history, things were largely the same in the 13th century as they were in the 16th century as they were in the 18th century until very recently, you know, major progress has been made. Not that there still aren't 
um, deficiencies that there still aren't things that need to be fixed that, you know, the playing field needs to be, you know, leveled or at least recognized in, in some ways. Um, but we really as a society, uh, Western societies have, have come a very long way. And for us to be able to have, um, you know, for our daughters and our, our nieces to, to grow up in this environment today is really unprecedented in human history. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And, and really excited to see what what their kids get to grow up in. Me too, me too. I say that actually. It's such a fraught, it's such a fraught expression now. Um, <laughs> yeah, me also so I, is the only. Uh, other me way. also, yeah. or I guess yeah. I should say, yeah. I am also looking forward <laughs> to seeing um, what happens, and I I do also think that now is not a time to take our foot off the gas either. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, that is part of um, one of the things I put out there in my book is that um, women are, we are role models, everything we do, every step we take, we are role models for all the girls who are coming up behind us. And um, let's be good role models for them. And let's show them um, how strong we can be. And um, how independent yet also collaborative, um, how we can use compassion and kindness um, toward ourselves, something women are really, 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 really not good at. And, and then, and, and um, toward the world, Um, you know, we need to model that. And yes. Well, and you know, in, in my, in my own life, just anecdotally, the, the most important women to me are absolutely the the kindest, most compassionate, most wonderful human beings to everyone else. But they are not that way to themselves. And, you know, that's they don't see the person that I do. And I really, really would like them to, you know, to, to edge closer to seeing my reality. Um, yeah. Your reality of them, you mean? Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. my reality of me is taken. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I prefer their reality of me. You know, I can substitute that and make myself feel better on any given day. Yes, I, um, I agree with you. And I, that is one of the things that I, of course, profoundly hope for when women um, read my book mm-hmm. is that they yes. can, you know, walk away with a more secure, um, and benevolent, um, and, you know, powerful, um, fulfilled view of themselves or the path, the path forward toward, um, toward that. Well, I'd like to thank you for reading off my next question about what uh, you should uh, want readers to take away from your most recent project. (laughs) 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 Our ESPN is in sync today. Um, Wow. Yes, it is. So that kind of brings us to the last couple of closing questions here, which I I ask of of just about everyone that comes on the show, especially other authors. Um, As as someone who writes, I expect you're probably also a, a, a reader. And arrogantly, I believe everyone reads crime fiction or watches crime TV because, you know, I'm obsessed with my own former profession. So do you have a, a favorite fictional detective or favorite uh, TV crime show? 
Uh, so my current favorite fictional detective, and I cannot believe, given how many of the books I've read, that I his name is escaping me. It's a French writer, um, mm-hmm. Fred Vargas, who's a woman. Oh. She um, writes uh, this whole series with this Parisian, um, this Parisian detective who I um, absolute, Adamsburg, Adamsburg uh, is his name. And I love her books. And they're, they're one of those things where when I'm feeling a little overwhelmed um, mm-hmm. by life, I'll get on Amazon and I'll be like, okay, seriously, there's gotta be a Fred Vargas book I haven't read. <laughs> you know which one is it because she's got all these different series and so far I've been lucky and I've always found another book that um that she's written so, <laughs> that I can read so I highly recommend Fred Vargas uh she's really great um her characters are I think well I don't know I don't know what your taste is but I would say that what is beautiful about her characters is she's not writing about cops who are, you know, crooked and crazily broken and all. She's writing about really decent people who have some quirky aspects in their characters, but who are really, you know, um, they're trying to solve um, these crimes because they are trying to, you know, find some order in the world. So. Wow. That's really unexpected for a, for a French author, right? With the, 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 you know, the perception of the entire, you know, national attitude as one of, of morose and uh, you know, uh, um, darkness that I, I would expect there to be a lot more, you know, corruption and serious flaws there. That's really interesting. Yeah. There, there's a little, I mean, some of the novels have some corruption. It's never our main characters. And, um, but not, yeah, no, they're, they're more focused. She's very into, she herself is like a medieval historian. Wow. So there's, um, there's a lot of, there's often some kind of very strange and yet incredibly interesting medieval historical, like the solution to one of the crime novels was a woman who was imitating, who was using a particular spider to kill people. And she was, you know, following, she was imitating some nun who lived in a hole in the ground, you know, in the 11th century. (laughs) So, So, yes, no, they're not as, they're, 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 they're not as dark as, as um, as you might expect, although I do love a lot of other French crime, <laughs> some French crime television. And yes. Some... <laughs> now, as uh, with keeping that Fred Vargas answer in mind in Adamsburg, um, totally hypothetically, and God forbid it should happen, Mina, but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, what fictional detective or investigative team or revenge artist would you want on the case? Wow. Well, I, I, oh gosh. I mean, I would like Adamsburg on my case because I feel like he would solve it in this, 
incredibly convoluted and yet fascinating way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would not, uh, you know, and maybe I guess I just also want to say on that, I would not want a revenge artist on my case. <laughs> no, just I justice. don't. Just, re- I, just justice, I, not revenge. Yeah. And justice is not um, killing the person who killed me. Mm-hmm. That's not justice. Justice is the legal system and you know, whatever is appropriate as um, a punishment, but it's not um, the death of the person who uh, caused my death. And gosh, this conversation is kind of... um, (laughs) It takes a turn, right? (laughs) Yeah, and also I feel like superstitious. It's like dialing my superstitions. I'm like, oh my God, we have to stop talking about it right now. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting because you're you're the first person, and this I think this is episode number thirty-five. You're the first person I've talked to who specifically did not want a revenge artist, and specifically did not want their own murderer murdered back. Most people have chosen either an incredible detective or they've chosen a CIA assassin to make sure the job got done right. <laughs> so it's wow. very interesting to me. Yeah. Oh well. That's yeah. I I don't even know how to respond to that. No, yeah, I just 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 food for thought, I guess. Okay. But I I greatly appreciate you making time to come on the show today and share your expertise. I'm really looking forward to the the uh, the success and and widespread um, application of of this book, and I hope that uh, that our future generations have have some some small part to credit you and your work for. Oh, thank you. That is such a nice thing to say. And thank you for having me on your show, Gavin. My pleasure. Thanks again to author, ghostwriter, and former litigator, Minor Samuels, for joining me today. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there. (laughs) 